You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. All right, let's turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, we'll be looking at a passage that I I prepared you for as we uh, posted a video on social media just about what the topic would be. Even as you turn there and you see the paragraph, uh, you'll see that it is a topic that is of specific concern in our society, in the church. Some of you have had experience with it. Uh, But before we dive in, you know, the church, the body of Jesus Christ has already been referred to this morning through announcements, through song, by different terms. Uh, Ken Heiser, one of our elders, as the host this morning, reminded us several times that what we are today, what we are as we gather, is referred to in the Bible as a body of Christ. We also see the New Testament refer to this group here and what we do as a group, as the church, as the called out ones from the mass of humanity. We are called out as the people of God. And so the church is another term. But another term that we see as we look at how the church is described in the New Testament is a family. And you know, when you're young, the family is pretty much all awesome. And then you get into your teenage years and you're like, family, ugh. And then you go away from home and you get to college and you miss your family. And then you become, uh, maybe get married and then you have kids and family gets really complicated. And so the family analogy is a good one for what we are here as a group. There's times when we absolutely love one another. There's times when we drive each other nuts. But at the end of the day, we are a family. And so from time to time, we like to have regular family chats where we get together with those of you who call this your church home, and we just give you updates as elders. We will give you updates for accountability's sake. We will give you updates to celebrate what God's doing. We will also give you updates to uh, let you know that there is a vision that we have here as the leaders of the church. And so uh, we are going to wrap things up a little bit early. So if this is your church home, we'll invite you to stay. If this is not your church home, we are grateful that you're here, but you don't need to stick around. And also live stream, we will cut it out uh, before our family chat, but we'll make a video available if you are part of the Ascend family. Well, Mark chapter 10, let me read our passage and then we will dive in together. Mark chapter 10, verse 1, if you don't have a Bible, grab one in the seats in front of you. 845 is the page number that will allow you to follow along. Mark chapter 10, verse 1, and he, Jesus, left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What God, therefore, has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, 
The disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. You know, this passage is not intended to be the end-all, be-all on the topic of marriage and divorce. It's not intended to provide all of the nuances of what is allowed for divorce or what the grounds for divorce should be. There's opportunity for us to take this passage in light of so many others and put them together to arrive at a theology of divorce and remarriage. And I know even as I'm saying this word over and over again that this is a a hot topic. Some of you have experience with divorce. Others of you might be going through the process of divorce. Others might have friends or family that have been impacted by divorce. And others of you may be very passionate about this topic or have long and deep held convictions. Others of you might be sitting here and saying, what's the big deal? So so wherever you find yourselves on the spectrum of convictions about this topic, I, I want to invite us to be taught by Scripture in this context. And I have to tell you, this is one of the most difficult passages that I have studied in the Gospel of Mark. There's been many that I've enjoyed. I enjoyed the last section where we savor Christ through our status. I enjoyed the passage that I preached where we can see and savor our dog status in the gospel. But this one in particular, it unfortunately, if we want to be comfortable, is the next paragraph in the study. But for all of us, we want to be students of God's word. We want to have his principles guide us, and that is what this passage will do. And so there's essentially two values for this study this morning. One is it will provide us more resources and tools to better understand God's design for marriage and his allowance for divorce. But the second one is really along the the title of this message, and that is the way Jesus handles this hot topic, I believe, will actually equip us to handle hot topics in our own lives. Look at the big idea in your notes. Using marriage and divorce as a case study, Jesus models the path through the hot topics of our lifetime. Let's look first of all. That in order to be able to navigate through the hot topics of our lives, we must put off your honor and put on your humility. Put off your honor and put on your humility. You know, the, the Bible constantly guides disciples of Jesus Christ to put off one way of thinking and put on another. To put off one way of speaking and to put on another. To put off one way of living and put on another. And that's the model that we'll see through Jesus' example when it comes to navigating hot topics. In this particular case, there is one group that was focused on honor and self-fulfillment as their priority. And Jesus is going to tell them, no, humility is what should guide us. Look at verse 1. Jesus left there, that's Capernaum from our previous paragraph, and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. 
It says the crowds gathered to him again, and again he was teaching. So Mark is reminding the reader that what Jesus is doing here, the circumstances in and of themselves are not unique. There were always crowds around Jesus. And when crowds gathered, what Jesus did is not put on a magic show or entertain them. He taught. And what's interesting is we see in verse 2 that there was people that came up to him. And Mark wants us to see this. Let me ask you this question. Do you ever have people in your life that when you see them coming up, even from a distance, you're like, here we go. Amen. I imagine that's what Jesus was thinking. That as this group, as the Pharisees and their uniforms were, were making them distinct from this massive crowd, as they began to approach, I would imagine Jesus, like us, with those people that came to mind, was thinking, here we go. And the Pharisees approach him and ask what seems like an odd question, but Mark has already primed the pump to help the original audience understand what was going on, but we have to do some work to get there. I'll ask the team to put a map up on the screen. Do you see what it says in verse 1, that he was in the area of Judea and beyond the Jordan? See, for us, that's kind of difficult to understand. But in the original audience, they would have understood that the area being referred to is kind of this taupey tan. That's for my wife, Sally. I, I just look at that, and I see it's a blah color. It's kind of a brown, a light brown, but Perea. You see Perea up there? If not, you can look at the video later. But Perea is to the east of the Jordan. Now, why is that important for this audience? It's because as we look at all of these regions that are different color-coded, they would have been under the rulership or the authority of different Herods. And what's important about this is that Perea was under the oversight and the rulership of Herod Antipas. Now, why that's important is Mark has already given us a glimpse into Herod. If you go back to chapter 6 and verse 14, we see that Herod had beheaded John the Baptist for a reason. And the reason was because John the Baptist preached a conservative theology of divorce. And so as we have that background, now we can better be prepared to understand the significance of this group coming up to Jesus, asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, they were really doing this, as Mark tells us right there in the text, to test him. They're testing him. And when you test somebody, you're trying to expose them. You're trying to reveal weakness. You're trying to reveal your own superiority. You're trying to put forth your honor. And friends, let me do this and just say that's often, and I would argue always, what happens in the context of divorce. Listen to this quote. You can see it up on the screen. John Adam and Nancy Williamson in their book, Divorce, how and when to let go, write this. Your marriage can wear out. People change their values, their lifestyles, and they want to experience new things. Change is part of life. You must accept the reality that in today's multifaceted world, it is especially easy for two persons to grow apart. Letting go of your marriage, if it is no longer fulfilling, again, from the vantage point of the individual, 
can be the most successful thing you have ever done. Getting a divorce can be positive, problem-solving, growth-oriented step. It can be a personal triumph, end quote. Now, why do I read this? It's because this approach is actually the prevailing notion of the Jews of Jesus' day. In fact, there were two schools that were divided over divorce. In Jesus' contemporary context, listen to this, divorce was assumed and beloved, even as I say that, for our, our modern ears, for, for those who have been in the church for a long time and have seen how divided, even in church world, the, the topic of divorce is, we, we might hear that and immediately want to run to our modern context, but, but we must put ourselves in Jesus' context and then the context of the original audience. And that's going to help us as we walk through this text because we're going to read some things that, that may make us think that Jesus is out of touch. But in the ancient context, there were two primary schools of thought. There was the school of Hillel. The school of Hillel was extremely liberal, or as liberals would say today, progressive. And they believed that for pretty much any reason, you could divorce someone. For burnt toast, documents tell us. For speaking ill of your mother-in-law. <laughs> How would that work today? There was actually one rabbi by the name of Akiba who said that if she just displeases you, you should be able to divorce her. Now, the other school was the school of Shammai. Now, they assumed divorce, but were a little bit more strict, that pretty much anything short of sexual adultery, which in the Mosaic law required stoning and death, would allow for a divorce. And then you had John the Baptist, who had preached this more conservative approach that probably Shammai, the class of Shammai, would have said, yeah, we, we kind of align with him. But, but so politically hot was that topic that it actually led to John's execution. And so this is where Jesus finds himself as the Pharisees asked the question, but it's interesting how Jesus responds. Look at verse three. He answered them, what did Moses, what's the next word? Command you. Now, that's going to be important because look at how the Pharisees respond. They say, Moses, command. No, it doesn't say command, does it? They say, Moses allowed you. And so they can already see that Jesus is actually driving the conversation in his response. Jesus wants them to focus on a command, but the Pharisees are going to focus on an allowance. Jesus is interested on God's design the Pharisees are interested in loopholes. Can we relate? The Pharisees go back to the only passage in the Old Testament that gives instruction on divorce. Isn't that fascinating? In the entire 39 books of the Old Testament, the only commands or instructions involve allowances for divorce in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. In fact, I would read that for you, but the Pharisees do a good job summarizing what Moses said. Verse 4 says, they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. 
The passage in Deuteronomy 24 is not a command to divorce. It's an assumption that divorce exists, and therefore, here are the instructions to protect the woman when divorce exists. Now, I have to be honest with you, and many commentators agree with me, that it is difficult to understand the motive behind Moses' instruction in Deuteronomy 24. Some believe that it was to allow a woman to be able to remarry because in the ancient context, if a woman had been married and then is divorced and could not marry again, that could essentially pronounce judgment on her life. She could not have somebody to provide for her. She could not have somebody to take care of her. And so this Deuteronomy 24 passage was extremely gracious that would allow a woman to have a certificate so that if she married again, she would be able to show that certificate and say, I'm not living in sin. But also men might have the temptation to say, okay, I'm going to let this woman go. I'm going to upgrade in their mind to another marriage, but then I'm going to get upset at my wife because she's happy, and so now I'm going to try to undermine the marriage and try to marry her again. A third reason could be that there was a dowry system in the ancient world. And so the man might realize, hey, things didn't work out for me financially, I want to get my dowry back from my original wife, or maybe uh, her husband died, and now she had an inheritance, and now that husband says, I want that inheritance. You can see the Deuteronomy 24 passage was just an assumption that divorce would take place and an opportunity for the woman to be protected. Now, what does Jesus say in verse 5? Jesus said to them, it is because of your hardness of heart. Beloved, hardness of heart means to refuse to be taught, to refuse to understand God's perspective. I'll ask the team to put a quote up on the screen. God did not sanction divorce. It is never good or right, but it is sometimes necessary because of human fallenness and for preventing even greater harm. Yet it was never God's intention for marriage. You know, even in this statement, there might be some of you who would say, oh, there you go. Sometimes it's necessary. Then others of you might say, what? Sometimes it's necessary? And you're, you're focusing on that. You're focusing on the, the grounds for divorce. But, but, but the point is this, is that God's design was always monogamous marriage for life. But divorce is always because of the hard-hearted of two individuals. So Jesus is beginning to drive the answer with not going into the details of the Hillel and the Shammai controversy, not getting into the details of the politics of John the Baptist versus Herod Antipas. He is saying, look, the point of your evaluation of hot topics, even the point of getting through marriage is not honor and my rights and my self-fulfillment and my being right. It is humility. It is the opposite of hard-heartedness. But number two, we must put off your bite size and put on your big picture. We are so good at bite size, aren't we? 
And what I mean by that is the, the specific topic. We get so focused on specific topics, so focused on terminology, so focused on areas of theology that we can't see the big picture. And what's interesting is that Jesus has had a trap laid before him. He, he could have answered the question, yes or no, couldn't he have? He could have answered the question, Shammai or Hillel. He could have answered the question, John the Baptist. He, he could have gotten into the bite-sized details of the debate, but he doesn't. Look at what he says in verse 6, but from the beginning of creation. Friends, I'd submit to you that instead of us focusing on the bite size, we should always go to the big picture. In fact, listen to this and see if you can relate to some area of your life where you focused on the bite size at the expense of the big picture. We need to be careful, friends, that we can miss the beauty of the image of the completed puzzle because we are so focused on the piece. We can be so focused on the puzzle piece that we don't appreciate and admire and understand the big picture. I mean, think about that. Thanksgiving is a time when we gather together as family, don't we? Christmas break is when the kids come home from college and some families get out big puzzles. And, and I know that when we put out big puzzles as a family, we can get so focused on one little piece that we never make progress. But when we start putting together what we can, and when we start focusing on the picture on the box, it's amazing how much more effective and efficient we are in putting the puzzle together. We often get stuck in the bite size, don't we? How often do we focus on the bite size of this pandemic? It is amazing to me how incensed Christians have gotten over N95 masks, cloth masks, masks in general, vaccines, mandates, restrictions, businesses that have little icons of masks up on the windows, and Christians have been so enraged about that, but not abortion, not same-sex marriage, not even the gospel of Jesus Christ. And even in my mentioning of abortion and LGBTQ topics, we get more incensed about that than we do the holiness of God. We get more incensed with that than us devoting ourselves to the body of Christ, than us investing in the discipleship of one another, than us investing in exposing our own sin. Black Lives Matter, social justice, kids who come home saying that a friend of theirs wants to change their gender, teenagers coming home and saying, I think I'm attracted to a member of the same sex. How about theology? We get so wrapped up in the bite size. Calvinism, premillennialism, amillennialism, ism, 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 ism. And listen, what I'm not saying is that bite size is unimportant, but what I am saying is we must understand bite size in light of the big picture. If we are simply going to chapter and verse, listen, sometimes the Bible does provide all the detail we need in chapter and verse. Ephesians 5 tells us, do not be drunk with wine because that is excess. 
That is chapter and verse that gives us everything that we need to know how to handle alcohol. But there's other aspects like divorce and remarriage where if all we are going with is these verses in Scripture to construct a theology of divorce, we're missing out. And we can do that with end times. We can do that with men and women in the church. We can do that with a lot of hot topics in Christianity. But we can do it with these social topics. We can do it with the political topics. And friends, I would say to you that the best approach we can take with navigating through hot topics is to follow the example of Jesus. And Jesus looks at the big picture. In fact, let's walk through the big picture, shall we? Look at verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, do you know that God's design for marriage begins with a binary gender? Do you know that gender is not a political issue? It is a spiritual one. It is intrinsic to our humanity. In fact, we'll ask the team to put a quote up on the screen. Genderedness is God's good gift, and its abuse is a serious affront to the holiness of God, whose image humanity, as male and female, bears. Friends, this is not a matter of individual autonomy. This is not a matter of uh, of anything political. This is a matter of do we align ourselves with the design of the creator of the universe? And it's pretty simple. There's X's and O's. He begins by not even getting to marriage quite yet, not even getting to divorce quite yet. He goes back to the beginning and looks at gender. God, in his infinite design, in his intentional design, made male and female. I think it's interesting that we look at the creation account and we see very quickly that man is a social being. And listen, I know there's different personality types. I I look out at some of you men that I know, and you say, man, happiness is being alone. (laughs) But I think we found through even COVID and through the the lockdown that 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 takes a toll on humans, even introverts. But we also see from the creation account that man is a social being, but God has designed man to be incomplete, and by default, as a default, be completed by a spouse, a wife, a woman. Now, as we look at the rest of Scripture, we see that God has actually revealed that singleness can be a gift. You can write down 1 Corinthians 7, 25 through 40, and God has designed it to be that way. But just like Proverbs, there is a a universal default. There's a universal principle. Of course, there are exceptions to those defaults and exceptions to those universal principles. But by default, God has created human beings to be social beings and for men to need to be completed by a woman. And all God's husbands said, amen. So he begins by going back to the beginning. God made them male and female. Therefore, verse 7, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. I wish we had time, and if we were in a Bible study, I would really draw this out for you, but the, the grammar and the tenses of the verbs are significant. He will leave, that verb denotes finality. Friends, I have to tell you that one of the greatest sources of conflict in marriage 
is the lack of finality of leaving. You know, there are tight and close relationships that people have before marriage, and it's not just family. Some people do not have great family lives when they're growing up. And so they invest in relationships with friends, with peers, with colleagues, with mentors, with coaches, with good friends of the opposite sex. But listen to this, friends. Whether you're married or not, God has designed you to leave those relationships as primary. The primary relationship when you say I do is to your spouse. Write that down, underline it, and live it out. That's God's design. It does not mean that we don't have relationships with our families. It does not mean we don't have relationships with our friends. But the fact is, is that the primary relationship is now with our spouse. So they leave father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two, verse 8, shall become one flesh. Again, the, the Greek is phenomenal here. Shall become is present tense. That means it's an ongoing reality. It is now your identity, horizontally speaking. They are, they have become, this is who they are. And then it says one flesh. And yes, there's physical intimacy that is connoted there, but there is also this idea that the two are now responsible for the one. I, as a husband, am responsible for our marriage. Sally is responsible for our marriage. I am responsible for her. She is responsible for me. Two are one flesh. Here's some ideas that we can walk through just by reviewing this passage. Number one, gender is a gift from the creator. Gender is a gift from the creator, and it should be recognized as such. Listen, as I say that, and as I have looked at the arguments of people who say that we should be able to change our genders and our pronouns, I want to pause. And listen, friends, I invite you and ask you to pause with me. And before we start casting stones, before we hurry to the truth, let's first acknowledge that people who want those choices often have pain in their lives. Friends, let's be compassionate toward that. Oftentimes, there have been great struggles that these individuals have had in their childhood. Often they have been abused by members of a certain gender. And so, friends, we must acknowledge that there's pain. We must extend compassion, but let's not get focused on the bite size so that we see it at expense of the big picture. Gender is a gift from God, and it is intended to be protected. But then number two, marriage is exclusive between a man and a woman for life. It is exclusive between a man and a woman for life. That's going to be important when we get to verses 10 through 12, which I have to tell you, I'm still a little confused about. Marriage, by God's design, is exclusively intended to be between a man and a woman. It is a gift. It is a creator's design. And listen, there are plenty who mess it up, including Pastor Jeff. But it starts with the big picture. Number three, marriage means that we must leave good relationships and make primary the relationship with our spouse. 
And friends, listen, it, 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 it's a dance. I, I wish I would have understood that when I left my father and mother and became one with my wife. There were some ways that my parents responded to me and our marriage that I'm like, what's wrong with you? We're one flesh, come on. But, but, it, but it's a challenge for parents who for 18 plus years have been investing in the individual and now all of a sudden they don't have that relationship anymore. Give them grace. Give the new couple grace. But let's not get focused in the bite size. Let's remember the big picture. We have left those relationships as primary and now have our relationship with our spouse as primary. Number four, it is now one flesh. That new entity takes priority over previous allegiances. It takes priority, listen to this, over individual rights. How can we apply this practically? Here's one. I'm going to throw this little nugget out, and I'm sure it's going to explode. But marriage, married people have one bank account. Don't have separate bank accounts. I've got my money. She's got her money. No. Listen, you might be able to come up to me after the service and have a good argument for it, but I haven't heard one that, that moves me off of this conviction. And it's a, it's a personal conviction. But I think one of the ways that the seeds of discord, the seeds of division can take place is by simply having different bank accounts. Be accountable. Be open. It's our money. We're one flesh. Okay, another one. I'll just keep going. Listen, the hobby that we should have in our lives as primary should be understanding and investing and knowing our spouse. We should spend more time with our spouse than we do our man cave men. Look back on how much football you watched yesterday. Evaluate that in light of how much time you spent, not just with your wife. Oh, she was sitting next to me. Like I'm talking about investing in her. Growing up, one of the things I despised was going, shop, going shopping with my mom. I love it with my wife. I don't love shopping. Let me just tell you that. But I love watching my wife pull out the sleeves of clothes and feeling them. She's tactile. I like being able to have my smartphone out and snapping a picture from time to time and be like, okay, that's going to help this brother out when she has an anniversary like next Sunday coming up. Which, by the way, babe, I need more ideas. (laughs) I didn't get to watch the football games yesterday. I would have loved to have seen Kansas beat Texas. Man, I'm really derailing. I'll stop right here. But, but, but my point is this, is I think we can develop ruts in our lives that get away from the big picture. Is that we are one flesh. We are to be investing in each other. It is a privilege. It is a, it is a glory. It is a delight when we can just get past our own focus on ourselves and see the big picture that God has gifted me with my wife. Then look at verse 9, what God has joined together. I love that. Here's a quote I'll put up on the screen that we actually were talking about in our small group this last week. I think it might, be, came, it might have come from Matt Chandler, but I couldn't find it. So how do you know that you're married to the right person? You ever heard a, a wife or a husband say, I think I married the wrong person? This is how you can know if you married the right person. You said, I do. And they have a finger on their hand that you gave to them, that's how you know you married the right person. 
What did I say? <laughs> Just read the quote. <laughs> the point is, is I think the very question that we ask, did I marry the right person, has such a selfish mindset attached to it. Is did I marry the person that's going to make me feel better? Did I marry the person that's going to honor me? Did I marry the person that's going to fit my expectations and make me comfortable in my life? And the fact is, oftentimes, God gives us a spouse that is intended to do the exact opposite. Marriage is a sanctifying classroom, and it is intended to grow us to look more like Christ. So what Jesus says is what God has joined together. Let no man separate. Now, again, we've got to look at the big picture, and we don't have time. You can look at Mark or Matthew chapter 19. There's some additional clauses that we'll actually reference as we get to this last point. But the fact is, is that Jesus is driving home the big picture of God's design, and that's where the topic of marriage and divorce and remarriage must begin, which moves us to number three, put off your hybrid and put on your holiness Put off your hybrid and put on your holiness. We we see in verse 10 that the disciples are struggling with this. We see in in Matthew chapter 19, the disciples say, well, then who should marry? Who, Who could marry? The disciples are still working through what Jesus has just taught, which would have been mind blowing for the crowds and for the Pharisees and the disciples need more teaching. It says in verse 10, in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them some mind-blowing statements. Whoever divorces his wife and remarries another commits adultery against her, which that in and of itself would have been mind-blowing, but even more mind-blowing was verse 12. And if she divorces her husband... See, in the ancient context, in the ancient Jewish context, the only one who could initiate divorce was the man. So for Jesus, the creator, the rabbi who is fulfilling the Mosaic covenant, to say if she divorces her husband would have been mind-blowing. Let me just explain very quickly at a high level what Jesus is not saying. Because there's essentially three approaches to divorce and remarriage that Christians hold to. The first one is divorce never. And I think as you look at Scripture, that is not what Scripture drives at. Now, again, even as I unpack these three very quickly, I will say that the concept of divorce is something that the Bible does not provide every scenario, the detail. I've said this before, that the Bible is not intended to be one of those instruction manuals that walks through every part of the Ikea cabinet and tells you the A screws, the B screws, and where they go. The Bible, though, is intended to provide us the framework so that we can have everything that we need for every situation. And so there are some who say no divorce ever, and I don't think you can see that because Jesus, even in this passage, is assuming that there will be times for divorce. Some will say that divorce is allowed, but never remarriage, and they will go to passages like this. But if you just look at the ancient Jewish culture, that was not expected. 
The very fact that they could provide a certificate of divorce assumed that if a divorce took place, then marriage was allowed. And then there are others who say that God's design is always marriage. God's priority is always forgiveness and reconciliation, but there are times when God allows for divorce. Jesus is saying here that there are scenarios when if there is a divorce and a remarriage that it is tantamount to adultery because this, listen to this, beloved, this is what Jesus is saying, at least where I stand through my study this week, is that Jesus is talking big picture. And he's saying when those two individuals become one flesh, even if there is an allowable divorce, even if there is a remarriage, just remember, this was never God's design. And so even in God's perspective, even though there's an allowable remarriage in God's eyes and according to his best design, it is as though those individuals are committing adultery. And what he wants those disciples and that original audience to walk away from that amazing statement with is a high priority on marriage. You know, growing up, As a teenager, I remember I struggled with this, especially going to a very, 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 very conservative school. In fact, one of the colleges that was kind of the design of our Christian high school, I remember visiting there and they had a love parlor, a dating parlor. Love parlor isn't probably the right way to say it. But the, the dating parlor was actually these love seats where there was this person who their job was to go around with a ruler and to go in between the two individuals and measure to see if there was enough space. Because apparently there needed to be enough space for the Holy Spirit in between those two individuals. And I'm not making this up. I saw it with my own eyes. So that was the world that I lived in. So the question that I asked my parents is, how far can I go? Because, man, I had hormones. Still have them, but they're not the same. And I remember it was not ultimately about holiness. It was about how much can my hormones be blessed and allow my conscience to be clear. And so that was a hybrid for me, though. What I was focused on is how can I fulfill my own flesh and still not get judgment from God? And that was the approach of the Jews of Jesus' day, is how, how far can we go? How displeased can I be? They would focus on that phrase in Deuteronomy 24, if, if there's some indecency of the wife to the husband, then there's an allowable divorce scenario. They were focused on, okay, what's some indecency? They were focused on the hybrid, not holiness. Which, friends, let me just say, if you're a parent of a teenager, it's not easy. The easy approach is like no physical contact. You've got to be within six inches, six feet of each other as a a dad of girls. But you've got to live in that tension. You've got to guide their hearts. You've got to give them biblical big picture principles. But you also have to include the driving motivation of holiness. And so here, let me give you just some big picture application points of what these three verses are saying. Number one. God's plan is for a lifetime of monogamous marriage. That's his plan. That's his best. That's our best. That's why great care, great great counsel. 
and great equipping are crucial. Number two, God does allow for divorce, but he never sanctions it. He does allow for divorce, but he never sanctions it. Two areas that I think are allowances for divorce are Matthew 19, 9, where there is adultery in a marriage, and then 1 Corinthians 7, 15, where a spouse abandons. Number three, there's never a completely innocent party in any relationship. And friends, listen, I understand that the significance of that statement. Some of you might be sitting here having divorced, having had a spouse divorce you, and you might look back and say, as best as I can tell, there was nothing in my life that was sin, but listen, friends, no one is ever completely innocent. Look in the mirror of Scripture. Number four, the Bible does not provide an exhaustive covering of every scenario of marriage and divorce. So we must take care. We must get counsel, biblical counsel, friends, not counsel from friends who will tell you what you want to hear. Go to people who you're like, you remember the Old Testament? There was that, I forget who it was. Was it Ahab? Ahab and Jehoshaphat, I think it was. And the king got all of these counselors and they all supported Ahab. And then they said, is there anybody else? And they're like, yeah, there's this, I think it was Milkiah or Micah that he always prophesies against me. Go to those people. Go to those people as you're seeking counsel because you need to hear their voices as well. Number five, divorce is always contrary to God's design and it always arises from hard human hearts. It's not mandatory. Forgiveness and reconciliation is always the primary goal. But we must not approach marriage, divorce, or remarriage with a hybrid of what we feel, what we think, what we want, and then bring in holiness. It should be motivated and driven primarily with holiness. Let me summarize. I'm giving you a lot of lists here, but I think it's important because of the significance of this topic. Number one, align your convictions with God's design. Align your convictions with God's design. Friends, we live in a day where that application point in itself is the most crucial when it comes to hot topics. Whether it is Black Lives Matter, whether it's social justice, whether it's vaccines, you begin with aligning your convictions with God's design. Number two, if you have gone or are going through a divorce or outside of God's design, repent, restore what you can control. I've counseled young people who are getting ready to get married, and one or both of them have been sexually impure. And when that's exposed in premarital counseling, you know, the tendency in Christian world is, like, put that scarlet letter on them. Kick them out, shun them. That's the tendency. But no, the grace of the gospel is repent right now. Own what you can own. Control what you can control. Sometimes the, the, the fiancé will say, I, I, can't, I just can't do it. And that's out of your control. But control what you can control. Repent and be right with the Lord and be honest with your spouse. Number three, seek reconciliation where 
it can be accomplished and to the degree that it is possible. I mean, Paul actually addresses this in 1 Corinthians 7. People were hearing this kind of instruction and they're looking at their lives and they're realizing, I was divorced in a way that that God does not allow and now I'm married and and what do I do? Do I divorce my current spouse and and then remarry my previous spouse and what do I do? And, and, And that is not what God wants. And so what this instruction is to do is seek reconciliation where and to the extent that it is possible. Number four, commit and recommit to the covenant of God's design for marriage. And friend, you might be sitting here as a married person saying, man, there's some stuff that you kind of stepped on my toes, pastor. There's some aspects of God's design that, man, I haven't been thinking about. I haven't been convicted about. They're not driving me in my marriage. This is going to be your opportunity to just respond in a way that recommits, realigns. 